Hi, I'm Lucy. This is the ninth episode of the Postgraduate Environment Networks podcast. Make sure to follow our show and make sure to check out the other amazing shows in the Climactic Podcast Network. Today, I'm talking to Matt Nguyen, who works as a policy lead for Reset Australia, who are a policy and advocacy organization looking at the digital threats to democracy. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Matt. Welcome. <laughs> Glad to be here. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Okay, I'm kind of... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start with asking you, tell me a bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, currently I, I, I lead policy for this new think tank cross advocacy organization looking at the digital threats to democracy. And so that basically means things like how algorithms and data and social media is used to subvert some of the democratic institutions that we have, looking at things like foreign interference, fake news, conspiracy, privacy, that kind of stuff. But I didn't have a background in tech really at all. I actually studied microbiology and immunology at Melbourne Uni and was like in the public health space and made a kind of a left turn into this issue. Tell me about your other jobs outside of Reset and what your journey was to get there. Yeah, sure. So I've had a bit of a mixed bag approach to my career. I'm a big believer of like having a plan but not sticking to it and taking things as they come that are that are sick. And I'm like relatively issue agnostic. I'm much more interested in impact and like what kind of things has the most needs the most attention in our society and where I feel best placed to do that. So I started off with an undergraduate in science, studied microbiology, immunology, and was very interested in like public health and global health. And so my honors was in vaccines access, trying to like figure out how you can have more equitable vaccine distribution around the world. And so relevant right now. Very, very relevant right now. And started like a small not-for-profit around trying to mobilize young people to call for healthier urban planning. So like was super into that public health scene and then graduated and needed to find a job and live a life in the cog of capitalism and actually moved into the climate space for a little bit worked at the Climate Reality Project, which is Al Gore's not-for-profit, basically where he trains climate leaders around the world in these training sessions. And so there was a leadership training program in Brisbane at the time. So I was like working with the Australian team to help realize that and got hundreds of delegates from around the region to come and like get trained by Al Gore around the climate crisis, which was really interesting. And then after that, gig, I moved into a consultancy that focused on social issue campaigning. So I worked with the Australian Red Cross on nuclear disarmament. I worked with the UN Live on running, on like designing this ocean conservation Side campaign. note, the crazy thing is you're only 25, right? Six. 26. 26. It's just wild to me that you've had so much experience, but it just goes to show that. Yeah, capitalism is real. And... <laughs> no, but just obviously you're really ambitious and motivated. Yeah, that's what I just wanted to make the point that you're 
really young and you've done this stuff. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. <laughs> um, yeah, no stress. Yeah, I don't know. I think like I hate barriers placed on youth. And I think some of the best people I've ever worked with are like young and much better than like legacy not-for-profit players who've been there for 30 years and have lost hope or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I was like working at this consultancy doing these issue campaigns on like that, on international development, on climate change, on whatever. And then as part of that consultancy, we were approached to look at digital rights in Australia. And as part of that, we spun off um, where I work now called Reset Australia, which is like this new think tank advocacy organization looking at, yeah, the digital threats to democracy and conspiracy and how data is at the center of all this sort of stuff. So a bit of like a frantic move. And I definitely didn't plan, if you asked me when I graduated uni, if I thought I would be doing this now, I would be like, no, definitely not. I would be working in public health. And I was like, I would be doing, I would want to be doing stuff on the COVID vaccine rollout and that kind of stuff. That was kind of like what I was planning to do. But like, no, just kind of take what you can get, really. So what's your plans from here? Do you want to continue doing what you're doing now? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty interested in the issue. I see it as like a lot of what we work on is how like everyone feels that society is getting more polarized. We feel that we can't talk to the other side of politics, whatever side that you're on. We, we can't have these like civil discussions anymore. And that actually has like pretty serious ramifications on like the laws that we pass and the policies that we enact. And one of the drivers to this polarization, in my opinion, is the amount of manipulation that these algorithms primarily being implemented by the digital platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Google are having on our societies and how that's driving this kind of fracturing of discourse in Australia. Yeah, in that respect, can you talk about the connection that the polarisation has with climate change and climate change discussion and policy? Yeah, definitely. So it's it's quite interesting because, like, I think now people... Climate change, I don't think, ever was supposed to be such a partisan issue. It's It's an issue of science. It's an issue of physics, of economics, of engineering. It's, like... When, we, when you think about it, it, it should be a relatively straightforward issue to drive sensible policy on. But for various reasons, it has become a super political partisan issue that is now super intertwined with, like, I hate the term, but like identity politics of like, you're pro-climate action, that means you must be on the left and blah, 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 this means you're X, Y, Z. And so I think that kind of politicization of an issue um, and now it's become an identity thing is like driven largely in part with like how these digital platforms are set up and so at the core of it these platforms Facebook their job is to collect as much data on you as possible because their number one aim as a company is for you to spend as much time on Facebook as possible because every second that you spend on Facebook that's a second that they can monetize to an advertiser to get them money and they they are the most successful companies of the 21st century in doing this and so how do they keep you on their platform they collect as much data on you as possible so they can manipulate you to spend more and more time on facebook on instagram on twitter on snapchat or whatever and so they know that 
you might like a certain game or a certain shopping trend or whatever. So they'll feed you that kind of content because they know that you're a 26 year old female in inner city Melbourne that likes XYZ and they'll feed you this content to keep you more and more hooked. And so you could argue that that's just capitalism, but it's also, there's also all these negative externalities that come about when people have realized that they have all this data, we can target people with these ads over a long period of time and change people's views. And so the US and the EU have had like much realer examples of this in Europe. They had Brexit, they had Cambridge Analytica. In the US, Trump was elected in 2016. They had all the stuff with like the Black Lives Matter movement. Do you think it happened in Australia? I think it's less of an overt kind of like example in Australia, but there are definitely examples of things on a smaller scale happening here. And it will definitely happen more and more with time if we don't regulate in the right way. And so there's examples of things that are just coming out now of, say, mining companies in Queensland hiring PR firms that will go into local, like small towns in like far north Queensland or the Hunter Valley in South Wales or something and start these Facebook groups that are like pro-mining, but like AstroTurf campaigns. So they'll be like citizens for the Hunter Valley and it's this group. And then they'll push out this group to get as many of the local citizens joining in as possible. And then they'll feed these this content, this pro-coal content, this pro-mining content, pro-fossil fuel content. And fear, fear-mongering campaigns will be like, if you don't want to lose a job, support the mine. And then they'll couple that with more public campaigns where they're, where they're targeting these people with their, their various vices, their various fears about the future and slowly change public sentiment that way. And that's a very specific example in the climate space, but this extends to like nearly any issue that you can think of. You can employ these platforms and the data that they have on people to change their ideas, to change their sentiment, to change their actions. And so it's like a it's like an interesting issue to work on, I guess. Yeah, it's super weird because with me getting all of my game advertisements like I don't even play games but that's all I get on Facebook that wow I'm also just continually being fed the same stuff is really terrifying so how does reset go about remedying that or what's their idea of the solution for it yeah great question um sometimes it feels like hitting your head against brick wall but the our job is to like write policies that we think should be enacted and then to campaign and lobby the government to pass these laws that we think through consultation and polling and all that sort of stuff to through research that would be good and it's like it relies a lot on like trying to wrestle that control over your personal data back from a private multinational to you and so there's a bunch of laws that have already come about mainly in europe to ring fence that data more have more requirements and obligations and rationale that these companies have to fulfill before they collect your data they have to ask for your consent to ask to collect your data and they have to make it understandable and so i think that's that's the general track but the first step in even thinking about what a redesigned social media ecosystem looks like is transparency and we don't have any of that at the moment literally no one except facebook knows really how these algorithms work within Facebook. No government body, not the UN, 
no one outside. It's the engineers and the leadership within Facebook that have complete control over that, how they target people, what parameters they're tweaking, what kind of things that they're pushing or withholding. It's within within the company. And so a lot of our efforts, especially in Australia at the moment, are about trying to force that transparency. And this isn't a new thing, right? Could you imagine a pharmaceutical industry or an aviation industry where we didn't know how planes fly? There's regulators that go into pharmaceutical companies and plane companies to be like, is it safe? Does it work? Do you have the right processes and policies and procedures in place to mitigate harm? We're just saying that we need the same system for social media and data. So has the Australian government started looking at that with, are they in talks with Google and Facebook at the moment? Because obviously it's hard, right? Because they're American companies. Yeah. The Australian government's actually doing a reasonable amount on pushing some of this legislation. Obviously, we think a lot of this legislation can be a lot better, but there is an appetite to regulate that and that's global as well. And so the best example of this is in the EU. Um, They passed something called the GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation, and it essentially in short is a really incredible first step to ensuring individual privacy and data autonomy against Facebook and Google. And there, and like face these companies aren't in Europe, right? But the ace in the sleeve that they have, I guess, is if they don't comply with this law, they lose out on the entire European market. And that's like hundreds of millions of people that use their services. And if they don't if Facebook doesn't play by their rules, they won't let Europeans use they'll like start finding them and like withholding access. And so in an issue like technology, just like in climate change, these these are global manifestations. They're, they they require a coalition of countries working in concert to take action. And so it's about joining that movement with Europe and eventually the US to be like, this is the type of standard that we want, and you must comply with it. Otherwise, all of us are, all of us won't let you not do it. How far away do you think that is? Uh, you know, Australia, globally, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Hopefully sooner rather than later. But I think the time, like especially for social media, I think the time is like quite quickly approaching. Like a lot of governments and people, most importantly, the people are waking up to the fact that, hey, these guys have so much data on us and they're using it to manipulate us actively. Are we okay with that as a society? And that, that's a really exciting time. And yeah, so I think like sooner. But then... There are things in the near future that we haven't had the conversation about, like when AI hits society in a more tangible way, we haven't decided as a society what kind of levels are we comfortable with of like, say, for example, an AI system being like kind of like robo debt, right? Like being in charge of distributing social services in government. Are we okay with that? Are we not? If we are okay with that, what kind of barriers do we need to put in place to ensure that it doesn't actually harm people? And so that, I guess, is like the next thing to work on after we get this it's like all part of the same issue how is it related ai i mean it's all essentially at the end of the day it's all about like how data is used to to, make processes efficient yeah and so is your information is your data is that personal property to you is that property to the organization that collects it and how can that data how can that information be used in an ethical way And we haven't written those laws yet really that well. And so we're at this time of reckoning at the moment where these systems are coming online more and more each day. 
And so we need uh, the legislation and the policymakers to keep up with that and to have some proactive and ethically focused policy. Wow, it's such a scary time. It's like like there isn't enough to be terrified about in the mm. world right now. Now we have to worry about data. And you've just recently been offered a job in Singapore. So tell me about that. It sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's like a good reality imposter syndrome reality check in a way. So yeah, I'll be moving to Singapore uh, and leaving Reset, but still within the tech policy space. But I'm joining to the Tony Blair Institute and I'll be leading internet policy for the Asia Pacific region. And so looking at issues like the Rohingya crisis, um, like the Uyghur Muslim stuff in China, the Hong Kong protests with Duterte in the Philippines and how internet connectivity and social media and the in, uh, is like at the heart of a lot of these issues, how governments can shut down the internet to quell protest, how governments might surveil people to clamp down on human rights, how the internet has one of the greatest tools humanity has ever invented. And it, like any other tool, it can be used to like liberate and make services accessible to people, but it can also be a tool to like really strip them of their dignity and human rights and life. And so really excited to like delve into the region and see how we can build consensus and build regulatory norms of what's okay, what's not okay, and like balance that with like different cultural and ideological differences. And so yeah, I like I think it's it's a pretty big step up to where I from where I am now, but I think it's like a I never thought that I would get the job. And I never thought but like at every stage of the interview process, I was like, oh my God, like, thanks so much for re-inviting me. I really didn't think I would move on. And like, there was a point where the guy interviewed me was like, you need to stop saying that. And oh I'm just like, God. just chill. It's fine. Let's talk about the other things. So I'm like, yeah, true. And I think like, it's good to have imposter syndrome in a way because it like, humility is a quality that's decreasing in our <laughs> society. But I also think that like, anyone can do anything. And so... You should just you should just apply and see if and like put your hat in the ring. What are you most passionate about in terms of your career? Yeah, I think what I'm most passionate about is how on earth have we managed to construct a society that seems to be based on inequity? It seems to be based on if the few in the West or in the top tiers of the global south that get to live a luscious and luxurious life off the backs of hundreds of millions of people who don't get the same opportunity. And that is a lottery of birth. It's nothing else. And none of your successes, none of the things that you manage to do is based off that privilege. I'm really interested in like the construction of that system and how there are things in there that prop it up. And so all the social issues that afflict society today are like the negative manifestations of that unequal system. That's why I was interested in global health because I was like frustrated and exasperated that there are some people in the world that don't get access to healthcare, which I think is a the, the basic fundamental human right. And then that's why I'm interested in climate change because the effects of the climate crisis will 
impact those communities first and most extreme communities in the Pacific, communities in Bangladesh and Africa. And so, yeah, I'm like really interested in how we might be able to rethink that paradigm and like work towards a world that's a bit more compassionate. So you're going to infiltrate the yeah, system deep and state. destroy <laughs> it from the inside, right? Yeah, or from the outside. Do you have any... <laughs> No, I think it'll be from the inside. Yeah, <laughs> you'll, you'll be a rich boy yeah, for sure. Yeah. How are you going to go about doing this? What's your number one idea? I don't know. I, it's I, such a big question, I know. I'm just interested. Yeah, so I really think that like governance and economic systems are built off the back of philosophy. And we have had thousands of years of Western philosophy that have dominated the world. But also like capitalism was based off these philosophical principles. And so to move into the next iteration of human consciousness we need to have that philosophical revolution and i really think that these philosophical revolutions happen a lot in the face of true adversity and so for me i think like a lot of the issues that we face today gender inequality poverty global health issues the climate crisis these are issues of the material world the issues of we have it, we don't, redistribution of supplies, how we get energy, how we get health. They're like material issues. And this is why I'm interested in what I'm doing now. I think within the realm of tech and technology policy, some of these issues are in that next evolution. So when we think about artificial intelligence and how that makes us reconcile with the concept of our humanity, when we think about the future of work and automation, what is our relationship with capitalism when automation means that we're less reliant on labor and that rewrites our relationship with work and the workforce and that kind of stuff. And I think within the sandbox of these like technological innovations and stuff, we might be able to have that philosophical revolution to be like, oh, wait a second, maybe I don't need to work to live. And what happens when I don't need to do that anymore and Please slowly discover start this. breaking that down? I don't know if I'll be that person, but like I think that's why I'm really excited about tech. That's why I think it's yeah. like an interesting space because we might be able to have that reckoning and move on to the next thing. Because at the moment, it kind of feels like we're playing like patch up the sinking boat. Yeah. Thing, being like, oh, like we'll, we'll, do a, we'll do a carbon tax. That will do it. We can't just tax it. We need to like... rethink our relationship with consumption yeah but we're not talking about that we're trying to like still fix it within what seems to be a putting band-aids yeah yeah. so person who's been in a car accident yeah exactly what advice would you give for people who are finishing their degrees and wanting to get their first job just anything yeah i think the main thing i would say is like don't lose hope i guess and like But uh, the quality of resilience, I think, is important in the job hunt as well as I feel like you've told me that you have been shut down from so many things, and that definitely gives me hope. Yeah, so many things, so many rejections, so many like you're not the right fit, blah 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 blah. And I think it's as young people were entering a market, like especially if you're studying something, if you want to get into a field that's like quite impactful and within that impact space it's quite competitive and there's not there's just not a lot of jobs like if you're an accountant no offense like there's much there's much more accounting jobs than there are campaigning jobs in whatever and so it's just about like 
the determination that you have to like keep sending out stuff when you're in the face of rejection and I think that's something that like really helped me get through. Did you do any volunteer work? I feel like that's something that is always said to students that you have to do volunteer work to get anywhere. Did you do that? Yeah, I mean, I did a, I did quite a lot. I was either a research assistant and then I was doing like a lot of volunteering throughout uni with various little not-for-profits and yeah, I think it's it's a, it's a very privileged thing to be able to work for free and I think I really hate that we live in the system where it's like an entry level job is like 3 years experience or something which seems like an oxymoron but it also shows the qualities of like determination, drive, ambition which I think we've come to reward as a society for better or worse. And so I'm kind of like undecided on that because like I was privileged enough to do a bunch of volunteering during university and I think that was pretty instrumental to where I am now. But now that I'm in a position where I get to hire people and I get to lead teams and stuff, I'm definitely cognizant of like that privilege isn't evenly distributed within the society. And I think that's like something that more managers and more people who get the privilege to hire people should keep in mind because like it's 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 neither here nor there. I reckon that could be good, do you reckon? Yeah, do you want to do like an ending thing? You can just be like, oh, well, thanks so much for... Joining me and thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to talk with me. <laughs> um, no stress. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Yeah, it's lovely talking to you. Bye.